1: Hello, welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Christine Lamberson. I'm an assistant professor of history at Angelo State University, and I'll be your host today. Uh, Today, we'll be talking with Sarah Haley about her new book, No Mercy Here, Gender, Punishment, and the Making of Jim Crow Modernity, which just came out in 2016 with the University of North Carolina Press as part of their Justice, Power, and Politics series. This book examines black women's imprisonment in the Jim Crow South, and discusses both the experiences of these women and also the ideological role that this system of incarceration played in creating Jim Crow modernity. So Sarah Haley is an associate professor of gender studies and African-American studies at the University of California in Los Angeles currently, and we're very happy to have you joining us. Welcome.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on.
1: Well, I thought we'd start if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, about kind of where you went to school, how you got interested in history or interested in this topic in particular.
0: Sure. So the interest in the topic really came from some models that I had in my life. My grandmother and my father were both really important to my intellectual development. And uh, I would say that one formative moment for me was in um, taking Asada Shakur's biography off of my father's bookshelf one day in high school. And reading it really transformed me and made me think about the magnitude of state violence in Black women's lives or the magnitude of state violence against Black women. And so I sort of proceeded to think about that through high school and college and following college, I became a paralegal and a federal public defender system in New York. And I started reading uh, more critical race feminism than I had. I had read some in college. And one of the books that was very influential to me was Patricia Williams's Alchemy of Race and Rights. And it had me think more fully about the structure of the law and legal doctrine and Uh, the ways in which law appears to be objective and unmediated, but in fact is so powerfully configured through uh, the intersection of racism and sexism. And so I entered graduate school intending to do a project on the role of Uh, understandings about Black women and criminal sentencing, essentially the ways in which sexism and white supremacy worked in criminal courts and in criminal sentencing decisions to sort of destroy Black women's lives who are facing criminal charges. And as I proceeded in graduate school, I was a doctoral student in African-American studies and American studies And as I proceeded to think about the sort of politics that I was invested in and the intellectual concerns that really animated me, one of which was prison abolition by this point, I started to think more about the narratives about punishment in America and how they take shape and form. And one of those ways was that we had this historical narrative about anti-Black regimes of punishment. And that was that We went from slavery to convict leasing to the contemporary system of mass incarceration. And what that narrative tended to leave out was experiences of African-American women, which is not to say that activists working on um, prison and anti-prison movements didn't think about Black women, but that there was a sort of mainstream narrative that really left Black women out of the history of the entrenchment of carceral structures of violence. And that was really the question, uh, the magnitude or the impact of that erasure was really the question that made me fall in love with the practice of history and think more about the power of history to inform our contemporary politics and the way we think about structures of race and gender. So I was really influenced by my mentors, Hazel Carby, Glenda Gilmore, and Joanne Meyerwitz. And then also, in addition to Patricia Williams, uh, scholars that I was reading, Tara Hunter, um, Dorothy Roberts, and Saidiya Hartman at this point.
1: Okay, so you got interested in this this historical question um, from your thinking about the present. What led you to sort of settle into writing a book about the Jim Crow era specifically?
0: Right. Well, it was really the power of a kind of question around how history um, makes us think about the present, but also um, really historical absences. And so there wasn't anything about imprisoned women in convict leasing or chain gangs. So discussions at this point about chain gangs were very, um, present in both popular narratives and in, uh, a historiography. And so, you know, Mary Ellen Curtin's work on this area was really, uh, central, but there wasn't a full length book on, um, imprisoned African-American women in the South. So folks like Callie Gross and Cheryl Hicks became really central to how I thought about writing a history of imprisoned women. Uh, but I thought it was really important to think about how this, how gender shaped uh, convict leasing and chain gang systems of sort of carceral capitalism in the South at this moment.
1: Okay. So I have one other sort of framing question before we dive in a little bit more. Um, your book really focuses on Georgia in particular. Yes. And I was wondering if you might talk a little bit about the state of Georgia and its uh, position in the story and why it's a, a particularly good spot to be thinking about these questions.
0: Yeah, there are a few reasons for why Georgia. You know, when I first approached this topic, there were numerous questions about the extent to which women were placed on co- in convict lease camps and chain gangs and whether there was anything in the archives that would uh, reveal this history. And the first set of texts that I read that really um, evidenced this historical um, horrible system of punishment were Uh, records left by the National Association of Colored Women, and in particular, they referenced Georgia as being both a capital of a New South sort of um, popular narrative around the future of the South and about Southern development and about a post-emancipation project of Southern industrialization. Georgia was seen in some ways as the capital of that. Atlanta, in particular, but they also looked at Georgia as a system that was particularly brutal to Black women. So there were really there were significant references to the experiences Black women faced in convict camps in Georgia. And I started from there, and it um, proved to be a really significant place to do that research.
1: Um, I want to talk a little bit about the research you did, but maybe before we do that, it might be helpful for listeners to actually just have a little bit more of an idea of uh, the system that you're talking about and and the actual kind of what you found and then back up to how you found it. Uh, So... Could you talk a little bit about what the carceral system looked like after Mm -hmm. the Civil War? There's, of course, a a lot of new work. And as you mentioned, lots of people talking about um, mass incarceration in the prison system today. So I suspect a lot of people probably have an idea of what Mm -hmm. you're talking about when you talk about convict leasing and those sorts of things. But but just in case not, I was wondering if you might describe a little bit of what that system um, was like and how it was developing coming out of, Of the Civil War and Reconstruction.
0: Sure. Uh, So when we think of contemporary systems of punishment, we think of the prison or the penitentiary, a sort of discrete building in which people are held in cages uh, after being convicted of various criminal acts. In the South, after the Civil War, In Georgia, in particular, they, the governments established a system of punishment in which imprisoned people, um, the majority of whom were Black uh, by far, were sent to work for private companies. Uh, In Georgia, it was a very diverse set of private companies. They ranged from railroads to agricultural firms to Mining, uh, brick making, railroad construction, road construction. Um, they uh, imprisoned people were sent to work for these companies where there was virtually no government oversight. Um, and these companies paid a very, very nominal fee for uh, the use of prison labor um, under extraordinarily brutal conditions um, of both deprivation, of starvation, of disease, and of uh, physical and um, uh, sexual punishment. So um, that system, you know, some scholars have described it as worse than slavery, or, um, there are books titled One Dies Get Another because the use of prison labor was so cheap that, uh, imprisoned people were essentially fungible or, um, dispensable because you, they were so cheaply replaceable. And in that's, in that sense, it's distinct from enslavement, um, because the cost of the labor was so cheap. And therefore, um, you didn't, you know, th- the conditions were, incredibly brutal. Mm-hmm. Following um, the convict leasing period in 1908, Georgia passed a series of prison reform bills, which um, established uh, chain gangs. And so ca- chain gangs replaced convict lease camps. So now instead of imprisoned people being forced to work for private companies, um, they would be sent uh, to similar camps, many of which were open air camps, um, to work for the state primarily in public works and road construction. But the conditions remained as brutal as they were in the previous period.
1: Uh, So you're talking both about this actual experience and how people responded to it, and also then about its ideological role. So I thought we might kind of talk about those things separately um, and start with the experiences. That's sort of of where we were. And you are able to talk about a number of individual women's experiences while also sort of, as you've already done a little bit here, summarize sort of the the broad range of violence, exploitation and, and other manner of horrors that people are experiencing. And to just kind of help listeners get an idea of the research that you did and what was this was like. I was wondering if you might uh, even pick an example or two that particularly stood out to you uh, to talk about what the experience of being um, a, a convict who was leased to work during this period of time was like for some of these women.
0: Sure, yeah. I guess... Um... I can I can talk about the uh, woman who opens the book, Eliza Cobb, who uh, was imprisoned uh, for infanticide in the late 19th century. And um, she was sent to work at Du Bois Sawmill camp. So she was sent to a convict lease camp, um, you know, sentenced to uh, Something like 20 years in prison and spent many of those years in the brutal conditions of a convict lease camp. Um, and she was subject in that camp to, um, rape. She was raped by a prison guard, um, and then eventually transferred to Milledgeville State Prison Farm. So in addition to convict camps, there was a state prison farm in Georgia. Um, and eventually her health uh, began to decline, uh, as did, as was the case for many of the women imprisoned in camps in Georgia due to the disease and and, and horrible li- uh, conditions and violence that they they experienced there. Um, and so she attempted to get out of prison several times by filing applications for clemency parole or commutation of her sentence and um, there were several attempts to uh to get clemency uh, and three of them, I believe failed before she was finally let out of prison in uh nineteen ten so she served um A sentence from 1889 to 1910 in a combination of carceral cages, really, from convict leasing, hard labor in a sawmill camp to a state farm um, in Georgia where people, um, Black women, did actually the majority of hard agricultural labor. Somewhere um, toward the end of her sentence, the coroner uh, who had examined her child, um, who she was accused of killing, changed his story. He had originally said that she had for sure killed her her uh, newly born child. He eventually changed his story to say that it actually was probably an accident, um, that her child was born in an outhouse and had probably died post-mortem. So, you know, she had suffered uh, brutal prison conditions for decades um, and until finally the coroner's story had changed, but the powers that be in the prison commission did not find um, the coroner's change in story compelling enough to let her out. Instead, it took several more petitions for clemency. And finally, a narrative of her kind of deviance from normative femininity and her lack of intelligence uh, was the narrative that kind of inspired a um, a very racist kind of paternalistic uh, um, discourse that, well, you know, we might as well let her out because she is kind of so deviant from a nor, um, any kind of normal subject. Um, and, and it's specifically from, you know, white womanhood that she sort of inspired a kind of, uh, pity and that's sort of, those are the terms in which she was released after suffering, um, Both prior to incarceration, her pregnancy was the result of rape, and then sexual assault while she was incarcerated, hard labor, and what appears to be um, an extremely long sentence for something she was actually innocent of. And, you know, in many ways, her story resembles the story of uh, many other women imprisoned in Georgia. Uh in in some convict camps, a majority of women were sexually assaulted by guards, many of whom became pregnant as a result of their rape. Some of them were innocent and some of them were guilty. I don't focus so much on that in the book because um, the focus is really what this system does for entrenching white supremacy. But many of them were convicted for um, low-level crimes, including um, you know, petty theft. And for defending themselves against uh, violence at the hands of husbands or attackers, um, gendered violence. So, it, it, you know, it was a system that criminalized Black women for survival, whether that's economic or physical survival, um, and also subjected to them to the kinds of conditions that uh, Liza Cobb faced.
1: So you've already started talking about this a little bit, but one of the things you're particularly interested in is is how these women's experiences and how the narratives about um, their criminality and them in general, I guess, um, more broadly contribute to the construction of this new type of white supremacy, pl- post-slavery to the Jim Crow system, and so could you talk a little bit more about how those narratives work and how Black women are particularly important mm-hmm. in in creating that that new system?
0: Sure, I, I, you know, it works on a variety of levels. It works on a kind of popular representation level in which Black women were represented in popular press in Atlanta in particular and throughout Georgia to an extent as deviant mothers. And this was a a consistent theme in the press that Black women were out of control mothers and that they were therefore producing this criminal class that had to be contained within the convict lease system. And so it was really the, the rationalization for holding black people, um, men and women captive in these dungeons was really that, you know, they were out of control because they were raised by deviant women. And in that sense, it functioned in some ways similar to what Jennifer Morgan describes and in her book, *Laboring and Women, where she looks at the role of gender ideology in rationalizing kind of systems of enslavement more broadly. Um, but there were other ways in which gender was central and Black women were central to the functioning of the system more broadly. So, for example, Black women were sent to convict camps under a policy of uh what that was called promiscuous apportionment so that there would be at least one black woman in every convict camp in Georgia so that they could do uh, the um reproductive labor for the camp they ha- they would do the cooking and the cleaning and the mending of clothes before they would go on to do the normal work whatever other sort of industry Was operating in those camps. So they would wake up at 4 a.m., cook, um, mend, and then um, be expected to, say, make brick. Um, And they would, of course, be expected to do all of that um, domestic labor for everyone in the camp. And so there was this notion that Black women were required to reproduce the system of captivity that held Black people more broadly. Um, There was also Um, essentially a system of institutionalized sexual assault and that operated as a benefit to the guards. So, you know, in addition to pay or hours, it was really sexual access to black women that was enshrined in a system of, of labor in which, um, you know, guards received certain benefits for their work. And one of those was the ability to rape um, in, incarcerated Black women. Uh, the last thing I'll say about this is that when the system changed over to the chain gang, uh, there was a law that the law that was passed establishing the chain gang to replace convict leasing. So there would now be a public system of carceral labor that was passed with um, the legislation legislation that said that women would be exempted from the chain gang. So in order for chain gang legislation to be passed, there had to be this clause that said we wouldn't put women on the chain gang. That's too brutal. But what in fact happened, of course, was that white women were exempted from the chain gang so that there were only four Women that white women that I could find that were put on the chain gang between 1908 and 1936, but upwards of 2,000 black women were sent to the chain gang. So the cart, the the legislation that was passed as an ostensible reform to remove private interests from the system of punishment, um, and the system that established the the legislation that established this new system of punishment, really operated to codify a racial definition of, of normative womanhood so that in the process of writing this legislation and enforcing it through judicial interpretation black women were codified as outside of the category of normative woman.
1: Okay. And how did white women fit into this? Cause you, you spend some time talking about, mm-hmm. um, and you just mentioned a little bit about, about the, ch- the chain gang. How is this kind of, um, how are they fitting into both women who end up being, um, convicts, but also how is this system dealing with, you talk about it, dealing with some of the changes taking place, um, mm-hmm. in society more broadly for right. white women?
0: Uh, well, there are a few ways. So, At this moment, particularly at the turn of the the twentieth century, there are significant shifts, particularly in urban centers like Atlanta, where white women are leaving the home to go out into the paid labor sector. Um, They're engaging in uh, um, practices of leisure that where they're. Engaging with men, uh, single women uh, in in bars and movie theaters this this is taking place across the country at the turn of the century in the urban urban north but also in the urban south And one of the things that happens is this produces an anxiety about um, white women's place in society, about whether that's in the home or in the paid labor sector, about whether, white women's relationship to patriarchy is going to be as as a status in the status of wives, or whether there would be sort of single women who would engage in these social leisure practices. And one of the things that this system of punishment uh, does is it establishes the kind of protection and singularity of white femininity as this a uh, category of subject in society that still has to be protected through being exempted largely from convict leasing and the chain gang, but also when they were sent to either the state farm or, uh, to a much lesser extent to so the convict lease camp, they were protected from hard labor and they were protected from, uh, the incredible violence of routine whippings. So whippings were the main system of punishment within convict camps. And it reestablished it, reestablished or reasserted the uh, kind of longstanding definition of white womanhood as frail, as protected from violence and reasserted then patriarchy um, as a necessary uh, system that organized society. Once the systems of penal reform took place in the 1908, in 1908, there was another law that was passed that established that instead of being released after their minimum sentence was up, imprisoned Black women would be sent to domestic service parole. So they would serve as domestic servants for uh, primarily white women um, under the supervision of the prison authority. And that law really, uh, in addition to being disastrous because it lengthened women's sentences, uh, it really established a kind of return to an old order in which white women were uh, essentially the uh, domestic managers for Black women who had, as Tara Hunter's incredible work showed, uh, shows has had been practicing incredibly important, uh, modes of resistance against sort of the authority of domestic employers, uh, with whom they worked, uh, in Atlanta throughout the years preceding the passage of this law. So there are many ways in which the criminal punishment system and um, representations about it reasserted both white women's sort of singular status as a superior and therefore protected subject in society, but also their ability and rights to kind of engage in economic and social dominance over Black women.
1: Okay. I want to talk a little bit more about the ideological work that's being done here, but before doing that, since you mentioned the uh, the kind of paroling aspect and, and serving as uh, or being sent to be d- domestic servants as a result of that, I was wondering if you might talk a little bit more about that experience. I mean, mm-hmm. I am particularly struck since we started talking a little bit about parallels today um, mm-hmm. about the ways in which you show how this is a continued surveillance and kind of continuing the the long arm of the, the state. Mm-hmm. In these women's lives,
0: right well, after nineteen o eight when the law establishing the system was passed when um when black women were eligible for release from the state farm at Milledgeville or the chain gang, they would be sent to work for white families as domestic servants uh as housekeepers uh child care providers, cooks. And But they were subject to sort of very intense and complete systems of social control and monitoring so that the families for whom they worked had to send in monthly reports about the behavior of uh, imp- uh, imprisoned Black women, about whether they were going out at night, whether they were abiding by all of the rules. They so they were constantly monitored and when um, imprisoned women wrote about this system of parole, when they wrote letters to the prison board asking when their sentences were up, they really conceptualized it as an extension of their sentence, as continued imprisonment, except now they were imprisoned in the home, right? Rather than in um, the state farm or in a convict camp. And, you know, it was also really entrenching a system of Economic exploitation and extraction, so some of these women were paid on a sporadic basis, but pay was optional and so you know you had a system in which many black women were essentially doing this work for free uh, with and 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 they were made to do this um, in order to have any hope of being released from the system if they did not work up to the rules that they are uh, employers uh, established, or if they tried to escape, they could be re-imprisoned and their sentences could be extended. So it was really this uh, dramatic and draconian system of complete control and uh, a system that attempted to entrench and um, intensify black female docility. Mm-hmm.
1: And how long were women spending in this uh, paroled state, so to speak?
0: So the typical term was one year and that was the minimum term. And I found that most people were released, you know, upwards of a year or two uh, after they were sent to parole, but there was no maximum. So there was a minimum of one year, but there really was no maximum. And, You know, one of the other things I'll say about the system is that there were many instances in which you had uh, white residents of towns um, in which they knew that a black woman had been sent to, say, the state farm. They would write in letters, sometimes competing for the labor of these women. So to say, I think there's this woman from my town that's going to be released. We would really like to have her labor. Can you please send her to me? You know, so it was in in some ways a traffic in black female servitude.
1: And how are women responding? You you do talk quite a bit about um, mm-hmm. the resistance that black women are engaging in. Mm-hmm. Um, so how are these women? And you've mentioned a little bit writing letters and things like that. How are they contesting the system and contesting the ideological role that they're playing?
0: Well, when it comes to, you know, domestic parole, either, you know, they're writing letters, sometimes asking to be paroled to specific people who they think um, might treat them better, where they might have better working conditions. That was not often successful, but once in a while it was. Uh, they sometimes escaped. They would challenge the authority of their bosses. Uh, you know, by talking back or you know not doing as they were told, going out you know at night, seeing friends or um, just simply you know uh, temporarily escaping this very very totalizing system so um when it comes to domestic service parole, those were sort of the main ways in which they fought back against uh, this kind of con- you know, system of confinement.
1: Okay. Um, what about more broadly? I mean, you talk about club mm. women, for example, how, how are, what is the the broader mm. uh, landscape of resistance that's taking place against this system?
0: Well, when it comes to club women, there are two women who really take center stage in um, my, Research on uh, organized resistance to this system, and that's Mary Church Terrell and Selena Sloan Butler, who were both members of the National Association of Colored Women. And Selena Sloan Butler, uh, who is lesser known but is a graduate of Spelman uh, and a member of the NACW, introduces in some ways the problem of Black women's plight in convict lease camps to the organization. And she writes this speech uh, at the end of the 19th century uh, that just takes the system to task generally, but also really specifically outlines the conditions that Black women face um, of labor, of sexual assault. She had visited convict lease camps, talked to women. She'd, o- she'd been to courts and sort of oversaw um, or observed, I should say, the sentencing project process that was so unfair, where uh, women would get fines that they could not pay, and when they could not pay the fine, they would be sent to convict camps. And once she introduces this to the organization, Mary Church Terrell, who is uh, the NACW president for several years, uh, runs with it. She talks about it all over the country. And she incorporates Black women's um, brutalization and convict lease camp into this speech that she would deliver called The Progress of Colored Women. And so the Jim Crow car, lynching, convict leasing, they all become systems uh, that she discusses as significant impediments to Black women's freedom, essentially, so that's sort of what the NACW does. And they pledge to what they, they call it, wearying state legislature, state legislators. Um, they were going to weary them until they ended convict leasing. But imprisoned Black women fought back against the system in a multitude of ways, mm-hmm. from uh, everyday acts of resistance like slowing down at work, to talking back, to, uh Engaging in sort of uh, modes of industrial sabotage, burning their clothes, breaking things, feigning illness. Um, but then they also escaped and um, they also, uh, you know, did more dramatic acts of resistance. For example, they burned down part of the women's uh, building of the state farm at Georgia, which is just a very unique and significant act of carceral sabotage and um, uh, carceral destruction amidst sort of history of imprisoned people's resistance.
1: So we've talked a little bit about how uh, this system has uh, links, so to speak, to to what came before. Mm -hmm. Could you also talk a little bit about it's links to what comes after, yeah. uh, especially, I mean, as, as we talked a little bit about already, and, and you mentioned in terms of your own interests, the system that still exists today, sort of how this history is really important for understanding what continues to be um, the state of incarceration.
0: Absolutely. Well, we continue to have a system of, uh, punishment in which um, Black people and poor people and other people of color are disproportionately punished, including Black women, and a system that is incredibly brutalizing in which gender violence is absolutely uh, pervasive. There are other continuities that I found that I you know wasn't sure that I would find, but that really reflect... The uh, persistence of gendered ideologies of white supremacy that results in the, you know, real destruction of black women's lives. So we continue today to see black women criminalized for both acts of economic survival, petty economic crimes, um, but also self-defense against gendered violence. And, you know, we see that in cases like Brisha Meadows and Marissa Alexander. And it's why the work of organizations like Survived and Punished is critical to how we think about our system of uh, mass incarceration or the carceral state today. There are other similarities. So one of the things that I didn't mention is that many uh, women were incarceration, incarcerated for prohibition related crimes, for possessing whiskey. And so there's a kind of precursor to today's war on drugs, right? Where, um, illicit substances that are criminalized at one moment in society, um, or sorry, one moment in history, uh, sustain a system of incarceration, um, and Result again in in intense violence. Uh, there is also, I think, a continued way in which representations of black maternal deviance function significantly in criminal punishment systems. So I talked about those kinds of representations during Jim Crow, but we see that uh, again today. You know, there are narratives. Of welfare queens, you know, that sort of emerged during the rise of mass incarceration, but we also see people, um, criminalized for sending their kids to a school that is not their zone school, um, for other acts of, um, um, what the state perceives as, as black maternal deviance, failing to protect their children from Domestic violence situations. So, you know, the state is continuing to say that black women have no cells to defend, which is a slogan um, from contemporary um, movements. Um, But also that we can, you know, support the system of state punishment in part through discourses that really criminalize Black women and connect Black women's deviance to a broader threat of Black criminality.
1: So I know I, before we started, told you we weren't going to talk much about um, literature, but nonetheless, Mm -hmm. I have a question on that. Since I mean, your book does an excellent job, and I hope we've gotten at it in our conversation here, of making clear just how incredibly important the... Narratives and the the discourses of surrounding Black women and claims of their criminality were to creating this broader um, racialized system. And so, I'm curious if you have um, kind of thoughts about why this this history including up to the present, but particularly this history is so under-acknowledged and under-discussed within the context of of thinking about all of these ranges of questions that this history sheds light on.
0: Right. Well, I think, you know, I mentioned some of the books that I think uh, Mm -hmm. actually have really done this work in a broader way. Um, There are other, you know, Black feminist theorists, Evelyn Hammond's, Uh, Hortense Spillers that have thought about these questions in a broad way. Uh, In terms of histories of Black women in the carceral state, you know, I do think that there is a broad, there was a broad, both historiographic and popular sense that when we're talking about racial terror or racial violence, we are primarily talking about Black men, which is not to um, in any way diminish the significance of those conversations, but Uh, You know, I I think that that was the primary subject that um, people thought were impacted by systems of racial punishment, whether that's lynching, mob terrorism, you know, and and folks like Angela Davis uh, really challenged that narrative when it came to slavery early, you know, early on um, in the late 1970s and 1980s. And you have other scholars of slavery that have done that since, uh, but I think that that notion of who the primary subject of racial violence or of incarceration is has persisted, and um, you know that's one of the reasons that I think that the ne- the, the his- historical narratives have uh you know have not been as abundant as they might have been. you know I think there's also a question within historical and just broader scholarly conversations about quantification and representation. So, you know, Black women were a minority of the prisoners who were sent to convict lease camps and chain gangs. And the question is, you know, then how important is it to write these histories? And I think that, you know, The work that I've tried to do, the work that Talitha LaFloria has done, the work that Callie Gross and Cheryl Hicks have done on Black women and incarceration, you know, I think what that establishes is that these lives matter because Black women were there, but also because these ideologies upheld broader systems of captivity. um, And that it's important if we're supposed to understand systems of incarceration that we both don't ignore historical subjects who did experience them, but also that we understand the operations of these systems of violence that we thought we knew um, and that we framed in terms of uh, their their relationship to masculinity primarily. Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Well, as I mentioned before, I wanted to come back to the question of research, Mm -hmm. uh, because one of the things, of course, and and you mentioned this in your book, you obviously know this, but for our listeners that are is particularly challenging about about this kind of book is that, of course, you know, a lot of of the records are written um, from the perspective of someone or at least mediated in in some way, Mm -hmm. shape or form uh before they get to you Mm -hmm. so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what kinds of sources you were using and Mm -hmm. how you were able to get at women's experiences or women's stories and in the book you occasionally um you know talk about the moments where you're speculating and what you do know and what you can kind of um Think is was probably the case, and I was wondering if you might just talk a little bit about that research and how you really get at those experiences.
0: Well, I think this question is incredibly important, um, both for the history that we're talking about and also for thinking about how historians do their work. And I uh, was able to find a number of sources that reflected. Uh, imprisoned women's experiences. So I looked at medical records, which both reflected uh, experiences or conditions of disease and physical punishment, extreme whipping. um, But also in their recording of imprisoned women's uh, experiences of childbirth, they revealed a hidden history of sexual assault and rape, so, uh, you know, the medical records were, were rich uh, and powerful. There were monthly and weekly, actually, whipping reports for each camp. Uh, not every single one, but uh, not every single camp had whipping reports that remained, but they were logged pretty extensively. There were newspaper accounts, organizational records, state prison reports and inventories. So there were a plethora of records. And uh, I think as you're getting at what they revealed are two things, essentially systems of, of violence and developments in Georgia's history of incarceration and also imprisoned women's uh, practices of resistance. And those two things were incredibly important, obviously for the book. uh, But they also are limited in, in terms of, the entire story of punishment and the entire story of imprisoned women's experiences. So they really reflect the power dynamics that are happening in the moment. So, you know, the archive is a structure of power in and of itself and what it omits are aspects of uh, black women's historical experiences that are about their desires in many ways that are about, their inner lives and feelings that are about the possibility of uh, relationships that exceed in some ways, encounters with power, relationships between each other. And Black feminist historians and theorists have been thinking about this question of invisibility, erasure, and silence for a very long time. And I was influenced by an essay that Saidia Harman wrote and, uh, called Venus in Two Act. And, um, you know, one of the things that it made me think about is what it could mean to say, begin the second chapter, which is a chapter on imprisoned women's physical, emotional and sexual violation with a speculative account about, uh, their relationships with each other. So I begin that chapter with, uh, a speculative history of two women, Nancy Morris and Adeline Henderson, who were imprisoned, two of the only women imprisoned in Dade, coal uh, mining camp for decades, and also another camp called Camp Hardmont, which was an all women's camp. And it's a speculative history of the kinds of um, care and interior lives that they might have shared with her, with each other rather. And it really, the decision to do that was really about emphasizing and shining a brighter light on the impossibilities that the archive structure of power creates, the things we can't know, the things that are incredibly important. You know, I, I thought about what would it mean for Adeline Henderson to read this book? And if she read it and thought and, and, and what was contained within it was a, an account of the brutality of the violence that she experienced and an account of resistance, I think that could make sense. But surely she would feel like aspects of her life and existence and subjectivity were left out. And so the decision to speculate is not to reincorporate that into the book it's not to impose that interiority onto historical subjects but rather to expose its absence in the archive
1: well yeah i think you've done an excellent job of really getting at these experiences while also making clear the ways in which the archives and the sources are really limited and the things that we both know but but can't know Mm -hmm. and We could talk a lot more about about this book and I appreciate the time that you have given us, but I don't want to take too much of your time. So I was wondering if you could conclude by telling us a little bit about what you're working on now.
0: Sure. Yeah. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, saying that. And I'm happy to talk a little bit about my new project. It's very much in progress and it's uh, trying to um, write a what I'm sort of thinking about is a black feminist history of the rise of the carceral state from the seventies through approaching the present you know, to the uh, first decade of the 21st century and doing that by centering the ways in which policing and incarceration requires a certain relationship to black Homes and Black Home Life. So in some ways, it's an extension of the first book where I was thinking about sort of regimes of, of domestic carcerality. And in this book, moving into the late 20th century to look at things like uh, police searches and the destruction of uh, Black uh, property within Black homes, verbal and physical violence against Black women that takes place uh, at the hands of police, in the home, uh, regimes of, uh, parole and home confinement, and also the ways that prison discourses and prison structures of life kind of use the language of the home and, and, and resemble, uh, domestic violence. So we, you know, within prisons, looking at structures of reproductive labor, um, structures of uh, violence that are gendered, that kind of resemble domestic violence, but also the ways in which uh, prisons, state officials describe the prison in terms of uh, language that is meant to refer to the home. So things like beds instead of cages, for example, the ways in which domesticity representations of it and also practices of state violence in, in the home really serves to sustain our contemporary cultural state.
1: Well, that sounds very interesting. I look forward to reading it.
0: Thank you very much.
1: And thank you so much for, for speaking with us today.
0: Thanks, Christine. I really appreciate this.